Today we begin what I think will be two parts in the subject, Put Not Your Trust in Princes. A little over two months ago, the Supreme Court handed down the Dobbs decision overruling Roe versus Wade. It was astounded and unexpected. It would have been more so had there not been a leak that sort of tipped people's hands as to which way the court was likely to fall but overturned a 50-year precedent, almost 50 years, in one fell swoop. It took away the legal argument supporting the killing of babies in the womb. Took away the constitutional pretext, if you will, to justify and send it back to the states to be handled under their ordinary civil and criminal statutes, as the case might be. It's an example of how God uses kings and rulers. For good things and for bad. We live in a world in which we just see everything is happening naturally and mechanistically. Very few people have any concept of the sovereign will of God or the determination and foreknowledge of God or the predestination by God of all things according to the counsel of His good pleasure. But God rules over kings and rulers just like He rules over the wind, the sea, the waves. Well, one of the means by which God has brought this thing to pass was through the activities of President Trump, who, as we all know, is a very disordered person. As some people would put it, he is a hot mess. And he does all sorts of things, good and bad, in almost an entirely unpredictable way. He's often irresponsible and reckless. He doesn't seem to have any real principles except pragmatism. He's shown himself to be a relatively poor judge of people. Look at all the people that he appointed around himself that turned out to be unstable and borderline criminal and so forth and so on. And who turned and stabbed him in the back later on when it suited them. He did many evil things in his presidency as well as many good things. He continued to murder innocent people around the world and he persecuted whistleblowers and good journalists as well as bad journalists. And yet, he appointed a string of justices to the Supreme Court who were willing to follow the Constitution in this one matter at least. That there is not a constitutional right to kill unborn children. And conservative legal scholars have long known this, but there was very little hope or prospect of ever seeing the court change its mind. You recall that previous Republican presidents had appointed O'Connor and Souter and Kennedy and Roberts to the Supreme Court, four out of the nine, and they were all more or less pro-abortion and went along with the fiction of the decision of Roe versus Wade. But here, somehow, the man who's such a bad judge of character somehow managed to appoint these justices to do this thing. It reminds us that we can't put our trust in princes, but sometimes the Lord turns the heart of the king. He always turns the heart of the king whichsoever way he desires. It's just that it's not always the way we desire or we choose. But God uses princes and kings to do good things and to do bad things. 
facts. This is certainly true in the case of Mr. Trump, and it's been true of all the presidents, all the leaders, all the rulers in the whole world for all time that God has had in His hand the hearts, the minds, the wills, the purposes of the princes and the kings and the potentates and the tyrants and the genocidal maniacs. So I was thinking of an example in the Old Testament of such a king and actually was reading through 1 Samuel when that decision was handed down and it immediately jumped out at me some parallels between King Saul and how we might draw some lessons from him. And you know we read earlier this morning 1 Samuel 8 where Israel demanded a king at verses 4-9. through Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel and to Ramah and said unto him, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people in all that they say unto thee. For they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them according to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even unto this day, wherewith they have forsaken me and served other gods, so do they also unto thee. Now therefore hearken unto their voice, howbeit yet protest solemnly unto them and show them the manner of the king that shall reign over them. And we won't read the verses that follow, but there'll be a draft. He'll shanghai the best of the young people and the servants into his service. The taxes will go through the roof. He'll create a great machinery to serve him and to be his military force. And then in verse 18, Samuel warns the people, Ye shall cry out in that day because of your king which ye shall have chosen, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. It's like you got what you wanted. You made your bed, now you have to lie in it. There is something irreversible about the establishment and growth of a big government that it can hardly ever be restrained again or made smaller once it has seized power like a ratchet. It only tightens up one direction. Then notice in verse 19, Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, Nay, but we will have a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. People who read the Scriptures and believers can only grimace at this desire they have to be like all the nations. You mean like all the heathen nations? Like all the nations whom God will judge? Like all the nations that do not worship God, have not been made God's people, etc., etc.? You want to be like them. And notice now, it's not just to judge us, but also to fight our battles for us. Well, see, first time Samuel took offense that they wanted a king to judge them rather than his wastrel sons. But now, they have bigger ambitions, don't they? They also want a king to fight their battles. 
as if the Lord wasn't sufficient to fight their battles. Because He always fought their battles for them when they prevailed. But now that's not good enough. You know, we always want to concretize important functions in the person of a man or some group of men. We think if we do that, that those services will improve. But they almost never do. They almost never do. They usually get worse. And so Samuel sends these people home to their tents. But notice this, that the failure of the king ultimately was rooted in the desires of the people. It was the people that wanted all these things. And yet, there was an inevitable process towards doom that flowed out of the carnal desires of the people. They would get the king they deserved and woe betide them for they deserved not good, but rather evil. And this is sort of a theme that so many people try to close their eyes tight over in our own country. And that is that we get the rulers that we deserve. After all, we get to elect our rulers. And then they turn out to be incompetent knaves and worse than that, wicked and foolish. We see that in our own community and the failures that are ramping up around us in our administrations and so forth. So it has ever been that the failure of the king is rooted in the desires of the people. But God gave them a king in 1 Samuel 9, first two verses we read, Now there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zoror, the son of Bechorath, the son of Aphiah, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power, and he had a son whose name was Saul, a choice young man, and a goodly. And there was not among the children of Israel a goodlier person than he, for his shoulders and upward he was higher than any of the people. He was a tall man. He was a handsome fellow. And Samuel told Saul, down at verse 20, we read this, And on whom is all the desire of Israel? Is it not on thee and on all thy father's house? This was in response to Saul's suspicion that he probably shouldn't be the king. He wasn't worthy to be the king. He wasn't suited to be the king. But Samuel assures him that all the desire of Israel is on him, on his father's house. And Saul answered and said, Am not I a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel and my family, the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Wherefore then speakest thou so to me? Now notice that Saul at the beginning is humble and felt unworthy in himself to be the king. Now this is a lot more than you can say for all of our politicians. After all, if you didn't offer yourself for election, you wouldn't get elected, would you? So the first positive characteristic of Saul from a moral and ethical sense is one that is ruled out a priori by our very system of selecting our rulers in these lands. In other lands where the rulers are hereditary, it's always possible that one would arise who was too humble to be king, but not so in our country. But God was at first 
with Saul. We read this in 1 Samuel 10 at verse 6, And the Spirit of the Lord will come upon thee, Samuel told him, and thou shalt prophesy with them and shalt be turned into another man. And let it be when these signs are come upon thee that thou do as occasion serve thee, for God is with thee. And thou shalt go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I will come down unto thee to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice sacrifices of peace offerings. Seven days shalt thou tarry till I come to thee and show thee what thou shalt do. And it was so that when he had turned his back to go from Samuel, God gave him, that is Saul, another heart, and all those signs came to pass that day. Now this is a miraculous transformation in the heart of this young man that God should change his heart, that God should give him another heart, that he should be turned into another man. Think of it. This is an amazing thing. And it is exactly what the Scriptures say. The heart of the king is in the hand of God. He turns it with us ever He will. And here God has anointed Saul in the heart and by His Spirit to be what one would hope would be a good king. But we find that Saul was a bashful person and still sought to evade the appointment that God had made to him. And a few verses later at verse 21, and Samuel is calling the roll call of the tribes and so forth. When he had caused the tribe of Benjamin to come near by their families, the family of Matri was taken, and Saul the son of Kish was taken, and when they sought him, he could not be found. Therefore they inquired of the Lord further, if the man should yet come thither. And the Lord answered, Behold, he hath hid himself among the stuff. And they ran and fetched him thence. And when he stood among the people, he was higher than any of the people from his shoulders and upward. Samuel said to all the people, See ye him whom the Lord hath chosen? But there is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted and said, God save the king. Saul attempted to evade his appointment as the king over Israel. But the Lord thwarted him. The Lord ratted him out, you see. He was gone and hidden amongst all the luggage that the people had brought on their journey to see their king anointed. But then look at verse 26. Saul also went home to Gibeah after he had been anointed, and there went with him a band of men whose hearts God had touched. But the children of Belial said, how shall this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no presents. But he held his peace. You know, here was a very good beginning for Saul in that the Lord put around him people whose hearts God had touched so that he might have an entourage about him that was in support of him and that were in tuned to what God's will was for the land and for the people. But there were others who were wicked people who immediately began to sneer and degrade the king, even though he'd been anointed. How shall this man save us? They despised him and brought him no presents. You see, it wouldn't do him the regular honor that was expected of people toward their new king. They snubbed him. But notice it says Saul held his peace. So here was yet another 
example of Saul's discretion, of his humility, of his peaceableness, of his quiet confidence. Even though he was bashful and ashamed to be made king, nevertheless, you see, his first act of judgment was one of prudence, one of civility, and one of confidence. And no doubt this was the Lord at work in Saul's heart. And how rare it is for us to see this sort of behavior in our own rulers today. There's all this bloviating and hollering and screaming and hand-waving and all kind of people take to the airwaves to choose up sides and to denounce all the other people that disagree with them. But here Saul just basically passes it off and ignores it. Stays peaceable. And God uses Saul to rescue his people. The first instance of this, of course, is found in the next chapter, Samuel chapter 11, where a remarkable story unfolds. Then Nahash the Ammonite came up and had camped against Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said unto Nahash, Make a covenant with us and we will serve thee. And Nahash the Ammonite answered them, On this condition will I make a covenant with you that I may thrust out all your right eyes and lay it up for a reproach upon all Israel. That's pretty pretty rough terms, isn't it? He's got to poke out all their eyes, gouge out all their right eyes, and put a pile of them out there to show that he has the mastery and domination over the people of Israel and also to mock the rest of Israel, that it has no real king, no real military, no army, no way to respond or to protect their own brethren. And the elders of Jabesh said unto him, that is this wicked Ammonite king, give us seven days respite that we may send messengers unto all the coasts of Israel, and then if there be no man to save us, we will come out to thee. Then came the messengers to Gibeah of Saul and told the tidings in the ears of the people and all the people lifted up their voices and wept. Now notice the confidence of this wicked ruler of the Ammonites. He was willing to give them seven days chance to stir up some support and some defense from their fellow Israelites. He was mighty confident that the people of Israel had no leadership, no gumption, no bravery or fortitude to come and defend their brothers in this siege. He knew that they would not materialize. So he felt he was safe in this. And notice the people's reaction at the seat of government when they uh, hear these words. They lift up their voices and weep. They don't begin to organize anything. They just are full of sorrow and weeping and tears because, I mean, what can they do, you know? I mean, the, the, the king of the Ammonites had him pegged pretty good, didn't he? But he didn't count on the Lord's anointed, did he? In verse 5, we hear this, Behold, Saul came after the herd out of the field. Notice this man is king, and yet he's still keeping the herd in the field. He's still doing manual labor. He's not too good to go out and do a hard day's work. The kingship has not 
ossified into a permanent place in which the king withdraws from regular life and is high and lifted up and has a palace and a government entourage around him and is too entangled in the affairs of the state to actually do any actual hard work out there with the regular people. But Saul is still amongst the regular people doing a regular man's job. So this shows us again the humility of Saul as a young king. Then notice what it says next. And Saul said, What aileth the people that they weep? And they told him the tidings of the men of Jabesh, and the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard those tidings. And his anger was kindled greatly. Now notice two things. First of all, that Saul was not naturally a person to get excited and angry. It took the working of the Spirit of God upon him to engender this response. And notice what the godly response was, that his anger was kindled. His anger was kindled greatly. But that's what the king needed if he was to provide protection for his people in these desperate circumstances. He didn't need him to sit down and join with the crowd weeping or to wring his hands or to consult with his advisors for months on end to decide what to do. What they needed was someone who would take matters up and do what needed to be done to rescue the Lord's people and who would respond in the proper way, you see, to an atrocity that was about to unfold. And even though he was a peaceable and humble and industrious man who was one with the people, yet the Spirit of God turned him into a brave and noble warrior to rescue God's people whom God had given him the charge over. So here is an example again of God turning the king's heart with whatever way he will. It was the Spirit of God that came over him. And then notice in verse 7, He took a yoke of oxen and hewed them in pieces and sent them throughout all the coasts of Israel by the hands of messengers, saying, Whoever cometh not forth after Saul and after Samuel, so shall it be done unto his oxen. And the fear of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out with one consent. Notice that this is a man who, under the Spirit of God, knew how to motivate the people to do what God wanted to be done, to do what had to be done. And notice it was not the fear of Saul that fell on the people. God's Word says it was the fear of the Lord that fell upon the people. Even though Saul did this, sent this sign and warning to the people, nevertheless, you see, the Scriptures tell us that this was in fact and in effect, it was the work of God on the hearts of the people. The fear of the Lord fell on the hearts of the people. You see how this is but a a tiny example of how God takes credit for the acts of men which He ordains to come to pass. God takes credit. God is orchestrating these things. God is determining these things. He's not just sitting back waiting to see what everybody's going to do how they're going to exercise their libertarian free will in order to do something and how if they don't do what 
he really wanted him to do, well, he'll just have to work something else out, you know? No, it was the fear of the Lord, the Scriptures tell us, that fell upon the people of Israel. So then what happened? Verses 8 and 9 tell the tale. When he had numbered them in Bezek, children of Israel were 300,000 and all the men of Judah 30,000. And they said unto the messengers that came, Thus shall ye say unto the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun be hot, ye shall have help. And the messengers came and showed it to the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. It's interesting that they believed the messengers. I guess really they felt like they didn't have much choice, did they? It was either that or have their eyes gouged out. But they were glad to hear that the people of Israel were on the move to come and rescue them. And then at verse 10, Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will come out unto you. That is, they said to this wicked Ammonite king, Tomorrow we will come out unto you, and ye shall do with us all that seemeth good unto you. And it was so on the morrow that Saul put the people in three companies. They came into the midst of the host in the morning watch and slew the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And it came to pass that they which remained were scattered so that two of them were not left together. So you see, Saul led the people of Israel in combat, and it was a rout. They utterly destroyed the Ammonites and drove them away and scattered them. And the king is vindicated before the people, isn't he? And in fact, look at what it says in the next verse. The people said unto Samuel, Who is he that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the man that we may put them to death. <laughs> You know, there's nothing like success to solidify the rule of the king, is there? There were some people who were doubtful about Saul's qualifications. But now they decided that whoever those people had been, they ought to be drummed out of the country. They ought to be put to death as traitors. How dare them suggest that Saul might not be competent to be a ruler over them. But notice that they're putting all their hope and trust in Saul when the story makes it clear that it's the Spirit of God working and working and working deliberately in the heart of Saul, in the hearts of the people of Israel, on the battlefield. It's all the work of the Spirit of God and the mighty power of God that He has caused this new King Saul to be a success and to defend His people on the field of battle. But notice, Saul still shows that discretion, that humility, that wisdom. Saul said, There shall not a man be put to death this day, for today the Lord hath wrought salvation in Israel. Notice that he continues to be very modest before the people. He gives credit where it belongs to the Lord. This is the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our sight. If it had not been the Lord, now Israel may say, if it had not been the Lord that took our cause when wicked men surrounded us and tried to put us down. The psalmist says in Psalm 126, Saul had the right perspective, you see, in giving credit unto the Lord. The Lord 
had saved Israel. And then notice the people rejoice. Then said Samuel to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. And all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. And there they sacrificed sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. They rejoiced greatly in the Lord's help, in the Lord's salvation that He wrought through His king Saul and by His Spirit working in the hearts of the people. They offered peace offerings to the Lord and they rejoiced greatly. And yet, we will cover next Lord's Day, even Saul would degrade and fall away from obedience to God and lose all that humility and all that wisdom and all that prudence would evaporate like a fog on a hot summer day. He would fall away from the Lord and in the end, we all know, the last chapter, he would die a suicide in a battle lost to the Philistines. And yet, when the King of Glory came down, the people immediately began to reject Him, didn't they? Jesus had less early days of acceptance than Saul did. Jesus is the King of Glory. And yet the people rejected Him. We read in Luke's Gospel, the fourth chapter at verse 14, how Jesus went to the synagogue in His own adopted hometown and how He read from the prophet Isaiah and He found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon Me because He hath anointed Me to preach the Gospel to the poor. He hath sent Me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty them that are bruised to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Now all these are glorious and beautiful things, aren't they? These are things which the people of Israel who loved the Lord, however many that was, had longed to see come to their land in the person of Messiah. They knew this referred to Messiah who had been promised of old. And look at these beautiful and glorious statements that Jesus reads out to them. And then it says that He began to say unto them, This day is this Scripture fulfilled in your ears. So Jesus is taking charge of these promises. He is taking possession of them. He is identifying Himself as Messiah, as the One who will bring about these glorious things to His people Israel. And it says, "...all bear Him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of His mouth, and they said, Is not this Joseph's son?" You see how these people were behaving just like those people that were sons of Belial who would not give Saul any gifts or presents. And they scoffed and said, How can this man save us? That's the persona of these people. They have clothed themselves with the persona of the sons of Belial at Saul's identification as the king. They've suggested that this is just the son of some local carpenter guy, Joseph. Who's he to say all this? Why should we believe this? 
This was not an honest inquiry. This was a sneer, a rejection, a rebuke, a uh, disregarding of what the Lord Jesus said to them there that day in the synagogue. Christ teaches, you see here, in response to that repudiation that's on the lips of the people as they murmur, at verse 23, He preaches His rejection. He declares it. He said, Ye will surely say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Whatever we've heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. But He said, Verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. So here is the first sign, if you will, that the Lord Jesus knows He will be rejected by His people. He will not be accorded the honor and the respect and the trust that He ought to have been because of this proverb which He speaks with approval. No prophet is accepted in his own country. And then He goes further. I tell you the truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias when there was a famine, but unto none of them was Elias sent save unto Sarepta, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow, a Gentile. Elijah fed or provided for this poor woman while Israel starved. And then he says, many lepers were in Israel in the times of Elias, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Now remember, the Syrians were the mortal enemies of the people of Israel. So the Lord says, not only, you see, does the land, the country reject the prophet, but God rejects the country and provides salvation for the hopeless and the lost and the people that the country hates. And sure it was to be with Christ that He came unto His own and His own received Him not. But as many as received Him to them, He gave power to become the sons of God even to those who believe on His name. Or as Isaiah said in another place, when we shall see Him that is Messiah, there is no beauty that we should desire Him. You remember Saul was greatly to be desired because he was tall and handsome, and yet there were those who hated him and abused him and rejected him. But here in Israel, it was going to be the other way around. The people would reject Messiah. And Messiah would open up the gospel not only to the people of Israel, but to all the nations, to all the world. Did that stop Jesus, though, from doing His great work of deliverance? No, it did not. You see, the difference was that in Saul's day, God worked through Saul and He worked through the people under Saul to bring about great victory. It was all God's work, and yet He used the hearts of the people made to follow after Saul and to obey His direction by the Spirit of God upon them. But in the Lord Jesus' case, you see, God did not work through the willing hearts of the people of Israel to aid in the deliverance 
of the Lord's people through Jesus, did He? No, He worked through the evil hearts of the people. He worked through their malignant dislike and despising of Christ. We will not have this man to rule over us. As Peter put it in Acts 2, Him that is Christ being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. As the martyr Stephen told them, you have been the betrayers and murderers of Messiah. And they hated Him so much they took Him out and stoned Him. You see, they offered up with wicked motives and cruel hearts and the depravity of their sin. They offered up unknowingly and unwittingly the Lamb of God to be our sacrifice. So mysterious are the ways of God and the power of His Spirit that He can move on the one hand to cause His people to do what is right and just in the defense of their King, while at different times He can move in the hearts of wicked people to accomplish His glorious purposes in the offering up of Jesus. And you know, it says after the Lord had brought about a great victory for the people of Israel in Saul's first challenge, they offered up peace offerings, didn't they? And they were full of great rejoicing. And so too we offer up peace offerings and greatly rejoice in our good King Jesus. He is the one whom we celebrate around this Lord's table. For He laid down His life for His people. Whoever, whoever heard of a king laying down His life for His people. And yet our Lord Jesus laid down His life to save His people. You see, the way it's supposed to work is the king demands and requires that the subjects lay down their life for the kingdom and for the protection of the king. But not so with Christ. He laid down His life for the protection and saving of His people whom He loved. One final thing. I have friends in England and in Ulster who are now mourning the death of Queen Elizabeth II. And I know that for Americans, it's sad to say we've about had enough of hearing about that now. Ready to move on to something else. Because it doesn't really make much sense to us, does it? But to them, it's a real thing. And they really are upset and saddened by it. It's an end of an era for them. And amongst believers, there's the expectation that things will grow worse for their country under King Charles III. He has no apparent, no apparent concept of Christian doctrine or morality and uh, seems to be one of those New World Order, Gaia Earth type secularists to the core. You know, we puzzle over this. Because Queen Elizabeth II didn't seem to do an awful lot as far as we're concerned, except wear lots of color-coordinated dresses and hats and swan around uh, with glitterati and wear lots of crowns and jewels and go and wave at the people and so forth. Well, what, what did she really do as far as we're concerned? She never led any 
men in battle like Queen Elizabeth I did. She went out there and at least legend has it, that she led the people in battle and gave fearsome speeches. It's not easy to see how Queen Elizabeth II ever endangered her life for her people during her reign as queen. But now they all have to say goodbye to their beloved queen and they will remember her for at least a time, won't they? And then she will fade into the history books, as it were, like Saul of old, one day soon, she will hardly be remembered at all. But not so our Lord Jesus. Our King is our very life and rejoicing. He is the King who gave His life to save His people. He's forever our King. There will never be a time and never be a place when our Lord Jesus is not King over us and ruler over us. There will never be a time when He passes away. That's why the writer of Hebrews says He can deliver us to the uttermost, save us to the uttermost, because He ever liveth to make intercession for us. So there's a real reason to love and celebrate our King. A real reason. And I mentioned to my friend over there a couple days ago that we must ever remember that we will never have to say goodbye to our good King Jesus again. There will never be a time when we gather around to remember how noble He was, how much He loved us, how constant He was in desperate times to save us, how He gave His life that we might live. Instead, we meet with Him at the Lord's table and look forward to doing so in His physical presence one day soon. No wonder Paul concludes his great statement, so shall we ever be with the Lord. You know, Horatius Bonner wrote that remarkable hymn, Hallelujah for the Cross. The cross it standeth fast, defying every blast. The winds of hell have blown, the world its hate hath shown, but it is not o'erthrown. Hallelujah for the cross. It is the old cross still. Its triumphs let us tell. The grace of God here shown through Christ the blessed Son who did for sin atone. Hallelujah for the cross. Twas here the debt was paid. Our sins on Jesus lay. So round the cross we sing of Christ our offering, of Christ our living King. Hallelujah for the cross. Hallelujah for the cross. It shall never suffer loss. We can rejoice that unlike the people of Great Britain, Ireland, and the dominions over the sea, we do not have to mourn the dying of our good King Jesus, but rather we rejoice and celebrate that as He died to save us, so He ever lives. And one day soon we shall see Him in His glory and in His beauty. And no one can ever take that away from us. And we'll never have to mourn or be discouraged because our King lives forever. Praise God. Let's give thanks for the Lord's table and for what it pictures for us, how it is not a ceremony of mourning, but a feast of gladness, and ever will be for all those who put their trust in the Lord Jesus. 
Let's give thanks for the bread first that pictures the body of Christ broken for us. Oh God, our Father, we rejoice that you have saved us by the mighty power of Jesus. We rejoice that you have worked in the hearts of your people as you always have worked in the hearts of people by your Spirit to cause us to see our wretched condition, to cause us to hear the gospel and to believe it, to cause us to come and trust in Jesus. And he said he'll never cast anyone out who comes to trust in him. Lord, we thank you that you didn't leave us to ourselves, but rather you worked a mighty power in the hearts of your people to trust in your dear son and in the offering that he made. We thank you he was faithful to lay down his body to be a ransom to paid for our sins and that you received it on the cross and were satisfied with it and that you were never angry against the Lord Jesus but you loved him throughout his entire ministry throughout his entire work on the cross for he was doing your will he was delighting to do your will and accomplishing your purpose which you had ordained from before the foundation of the world in Christ and in the cross. And we give you the praise for it. We thank you that we need not have any sadness or sorrow for our King because He lives forever. He rules forever. He saves us forever. And we thank you for this feast He left us to remember Him by. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Scriptures tell us that on the night our Lord was betrayed, He took the bread and He blessed it and He broke it and He said, Take and eat. This is My body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. Let's give thanks for the cup. I'd like to ask my father if he'd give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus shed for atonement of our sin. And the Scriptures tell us that after they had supped, He took the cup and He blessed it. And he said, drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in my blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of me. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's stand and sing number 211 in the big blue book. Horatius Bonner's hymn. Hallelujah for the cross. Twas here the debt was paid. Our sins on Jesus laid. So round the cross we sing of Christ our offering, of Christ our living King. Hallelujah for the cross.